Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time, we spoke about the inconclusive coronation of Shaul. Even though Shaul had been selected by God and confirmed by lottery, some of the Israelites were unsure of his fitness for the role. And chapter 10 concluded with them disparaging Shaul and refusing to present gifts or tribute as he was coronated. Shaul's response was silence. And with that, the chapter ended. Chapter 11 picks up the story. Shaul is now king, but he has yet to don the mantle of kingship in an official fashion until the events of this chapter unfold. In many ways, chapter 11 is Shaul's most glorious moment as king. It begins with an unprovoked attack. Nachash, the Ammonite, encamps, surrounds, besieges the Israelite town of Yavesh Gilad. Yavesh Gilad is a town located east of the Jordan River, basically the same latitude as Beit She'an in modern Israel today. And the Ammonites, of course, were a people that inhabited the eastern side of the Jordan River. The modern kingdom of Jordan has its capital at Amman, which is, of course, a memory of the ancient Ammonites. That was their capital. In any case, Nachash besieges Yavesh Gilad. The people of Yavesh are prepared to surrender. Nachash says, surrender indeed on one condition, and that is that I will gouge out your right eyes in order to bring disgrace upon all of Israel. Of course, for warriors, for swordsmen, for archers, typically right-handed, to gouge out the right eye would deprive them of any ability to fight effectively in battle. And Nachash is also interested, of course, in humiliating the people of Israel. The elders of Yavish say, give us seven days. We will send messengers to all of the people of Israel, if there is no one prepared to save us, we will surrender to you and you will do as you desire. And Nachash, of course, agrees, which is itself a striking development. Why would Nachash risk the possibility that in fact, some Israelites might come to the aid of Yavesh Gilad unless Nachash was absolutely convinced that the people of Israel were so weak and in such disarray that they would never mount an attack in order to defend Yavesh Gilad and therefore offering Yavesh seven days to seek salvation that will not come will create an even greater humiliation. The messengers come to Givat Shaul. 
It was once known as Giv'ah, the hilltop in the tribe of Benjamin, but now it is Giv'at Shaul because Shaul is king. And they share the news. The people in Giv'ah begin to cry, Shaul was not present when the messengers arrived. The text reports in verse number five, Shaul followed the cattle back from the field. And Shaul said to the people, why are they crying? And they told him everything that the people of Yavish had endured. Now, this is, of course, a striking moment. Shaul is king of Israel. Why on earth is he following the cattle back from the field? Some of the commentaries understand it less than literally. It's not about Shaul actually plowing in the fields. It's more about the time of day. The cattle return from the fields in the evening, and that's when Shaul receives the news. But some of the commentaries actually understand that Shaul was plowing in the field. Imagine the king of Israel plowing in the field. As if to say, here is a man who has been appointed. Here is a man who has been designated. Long live the king. But he has yet to actually take up leadership in a serious fashion. And this will be his moment. The Spirit of God comes upon Shaul when he hears these things. And he was very upset. Verse number 7. He takes the pair of cattle and he cuts them to pieces. And he sends the pieces to all the borders of Israel with those very messengers saying, Asher einenu yotzei acharei Shaul v'achar Shemuel. Whoever refuses to follow Shaul and Shemuel into battle, this is what will happen to their cattle. And the fear of God fell upon the people and they went out to battle as a single man. So here is Shaul seizing the initiative in the moment, thinking about how he will encourage the people of Israel to follow him into battle against a foe who had a reputation for brutality and cruelty. And Shaul cuts the cattle and sends it out and the people fall into line significantly in Shaul's message, he says, whoever doesn't follow Shaul and Shemuel, his cattle will suffer this fate. And we might say, in light of our earlier discussion, Shaul is proving himself, in fact, to be under the guidance of Shemuel, at least theoretically. And so Shaul announces as king of Israel, we also will enter this battle with Shemuel at our side. He counted the people. There were 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 from the tribe of Yehuda. And he told those messengers, tell the people of Yavesh Gilad that tomorrow you will be saved in the heat of the day. And the people of Yavesh, when they heard the news, were overjoyed. People of Yavesh turned to Nachash the Ammonite and said, Tomorrow we will surrender to you. It was, of course, a ruse. And you may do to us whatever you see fit. But the next day, Shaul took his force, divided it into three, and attacked the Ammonite camp at the morning watch. And the Ammonites were destroyed. They were routed and they fled. 
no two Ammonites remain together. It was a crushing victory. And if we ask ourselves, how was it accomplished? We might say it was accomplished by a leader who took leadership into his hands. He rallied the people. He organized his troops. He came up with a strategy for attacking the Ammonites, and he marched courageously into battle. At the beginning of the morning watch, which typically is a time when the camp is not expecting an attack, and perhaps the guards are groggy, and that's the precise moment when Shaul chooses to begin his battle. And it is a resounding triumph. So much so that the people now turn to Shemuel, who wasn't part of the battle, but clearly is present. And they say, what about those guys who had questioned Shaul's fitness for rule? Tnu ha'anashim, give us those men and we will put them to death. Because Shaul has proven himself to be more than fit to be the king of Israel. Shaul, we might have expected, would have readily agreed how nice to get rid of the opposition. But actually, Shaul responds, not on this day, no man will die, because God has done a great salvation in Israel. Everything went according to plan. And God was part of the picture. And Shaul gives God his due credit in the victory. Shemuel said to the people, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And sure enough, they went to Gilgal and they made Shaul king before God in Gilgal and they offered sacrifices, peace offerings. And there Shaul and all the people of Israel were very, very joyous. And with that, the chapter concludes. A second coronation. Commentaries point out why would a second coronation have been necessary, except for the fact that the first coronation was not universally accepted, as we saw. Or to put it differently, at the end of chapter 10, Shaul had been appointed as king. He had been designated. He had been selected. But his fitness for kingship was called into question. And as a result of that, there was a necessity to do a second coronation. But only after Shaul had proved himself in battle. We might say this was Shaul's crowning achievement, no pun intended. Here was a king who stepped up to the plate, who rallied his people, who led them, who guided them, who came up with a successful strategy, who destroyed the enemy, and who demonstrated nobility in that triumph, allowing the opposition to quietly accept his kingship. So we had an idea of Shaul's nobility earlier. We didn't have a clear idea of his ability, however, 
to actually exercise kingship until this very moment. We might say this was the day when Shaul truly became king. And we could stop our discussion here, and this chapter would make perfect sense in the larger context of the book. But actually, this chapter also presents us with a singular opportunity to consider the idea of intertextuality, which I would like to introduce briefly. Intertextuality is the idea that the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, is cross-referential and self-referential, which is to say, when a story is reported in one part of the Hebrew Bible, it may very well be connected with another story somewhere else in the Hebrew Bible, perhaps separated into different books, perhaps separated by centuries, and yet literarily there is a connection, and to recognize the connection is to help us interpret the true meaning of the moment. And with that in mind, I would like to consider for a moment the elements of our story. In our story, we have the following details. The people of Yavesh Gilad were threatened with mutilation. Shaul from the tribe of Benjamin will intervene in order to save them. In order to rally the troops, he will take the cattle and cut it into pieces as a veiled threat to his subjects to enter battle in order to save Yavesh Gilad. And, of course, the conclusion of these events is the revelation that, in fact, Shaul is a competent king. I might say in Hebrew, in those days it was revealed that there was a king in Israel in spite of the opposition and the doubts in chapter 10, and that was Shaul. Strikingly, all of these elements appear in an earlier story, a story at the very end of Sefer Shoftim of the Book of Judges. In fact, it is the concluding story in Sefer Shoftim, and it is a harrowing tale. In short, there was a Levite who had a concubine, and he had traveled home with her. They had lodged in a Benjaminite town called Giv'ah, and there, criminals in the town had surrounded the house where they were lodging and demanded that the guests be turned over. The concubine was given to the mob, and she was raped and killed by them. Eventually, the people of Israel went out to battle in a massive show of force, they demanded that the Benjaminites turn over the criminals, which the Benjaminites refused to do. And after a series of battles, the tribe of Benjamin was decimated, almost completely wiped out. Only 600 Benjaminite men remained. At the same time, the tribes of Israel swore an oath that they would not marry their daughters to any surviving Benjaminites, effectively condemning the tribe to extirpation. Realizing that this would spell the end of the tribe of Benjamin, they try to change the course, 
And they decided in order to find women for these 600 men, they would have to somehow discover an Israelite town that had not participated in the battle and massacre its inhabitants except for the unmarried women. And that's precisely what they do to Yavesh Gilad. So Yavesh Gilad did not provide troops for the battle against Binyamin, and Yavesh Gilad was destroyed, except for 400 maidens who were now given to these Benjaminite survivors in order to perpetuate the tribe. It's a long story, it's a detailed story, but those are the basic elements. It is a story of violence and brutality and immorality and I should just add one important detail. The story in Sefer Shoftim is introduced with a refrain from the end of the book. Bayamim hahem ein melech Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and therefore everyone did what was fit in their eyes. It was a leadership vacuum which allowed those Benjaminite criminals to do their evil deed. It was a leadership vacuum which led to the tribes of Israel attacking one of their own and almost destroying them. So the elements from that story, which the rabbis refer to as the story of Pilegish Begiv'ah, or the concubine at Giv'ah, the elements of the story are the tribe of Benjamin furnishing criminals, evil men that murder the concubine, the people of Yavesh Gilad, in the end, who are massacred in order for the maidens that survive to marry the remaining Benjaminites, all of the tribes of Israel gathering against Benjamin in order to do battle, and one more critical detail which is in order to drive home the shocking nature of the crime and encourage the tribes of Israel to enter a battle against Benjamin, the concubine is cut up into pieces and her body parts are sent among all the tribes. And the horrific imagery is enough to bring them together in order to attack the tribe of Benjamin. Actually, the story of the concubine at Giv'ah is the mirror image of our story with Shaul. Except, rather than Benjamin furnishing the criminals, Benjamin now furnishes Shaul who will save the day. Rather than Yavesh Gil'ad being destroyed by the tribes of Israel, here, Yavesh Gilad is actually saved. Rather than a concubine being cut into pieces in order to draw the people to battle, now it is the cattle that is cut into pieces. And most importantly, in those days, Sefer Shoftim reports, there was no king in Israel. And that is why that horrific event took place. Effectively, our chapter therefore is indicating this is what is possible when there is a king in Israel. 
when there is leadership, when there is nobility of character, when there is a people that feels confident following their leader into battle. Yavesh is not destroyed. Yavesh will be saved. Benjamin will not be the tribe that brings down the people of Israel, but the one that raises them up. Or to put it differently, in more rabbinic terms, our version of the story is the tikkun, the repair for the earlier debacle which concluded Sefer Shoftim. So it is not simply a story, a local story of Shaul becoming king. It's a much larger story of revisiting the horrific events at the end of Sefer Shoftim and, as it were, rehabilitating and rescuing them and changing the course of Israelite history in the process. It's a karma-esque moment, but in the Tanakh and the Hebrew Bible, the karma-esque moment, as it were, is always brought about by the choices that human beings make. So Shaul and the people of Israel, in making their constructive choices, in putting their trust in God, in doing what is right and what is good, not only save Yavesh Gilad from the clutches of the Ammonites, not only create the conditions for Shaul to now be accepted as king of Israel, but actually rescue that earlier story in Sefer Shoftim and turn it around such that it now can be a positive reflection of what is possible. So that's intertextuality in a nutshell. Next time we will read about Shemuel taking a step back in order to allow Shaul the opportunity to exercise his rule. But as we will see, it's going to be a fraught moment. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Quorum Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.